Hey, CNFers, little shout-out here to Athletic Brewing, the best damn non-alcoholic beer out there. Not a paid plug, but I am a brand ambassador, and I want to celebrate this amazing product. If you head to athleticbrewing.com and use the promo code BRENDANO20 at checkout, you get a nice little discount on your first order. I don't get any money, and they are not an official sponsor of the podcast. I just get points for, like, swag and beer. Give it a shot. And the God No File is when I give her my... Uh, chapter after it, you know, hot off the press and show it to her. And she starts to read something. She says, God, no. And God, no, is always the section where I went on and on and on about something. And that goes into a little folder that's called the God, no file. Oh, hey, CNF, it's CNF Pod, the creative nonfiction podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. How's it going? Once upon a time, David Grand came on the show for episode 99 to talk about Killers of the Flower Moon, and he returns for episode 366 to talk about his new book, The Wager, A Tale of Shipwreck, Mutiny, and Murder. It's published by Bantam Doubleday Dell. And I'll come right out and say it, CNFers, there's nobody better at reconstructing these narratives that immerse you in an era and make you feel the tension of being there even if there is 300 years ago. So we talk about how he creates tension and also how each book he writes merits its own voice and tone and where the term, among others, under the weather comes from. The Wager has resonant themes that echo into the present and dives into the issue of colonialism, racism, shipbuilding, and the degradation of the human mind and spirit. This was a time where the balance of power was beginning to shift uh, from like Spain to Britain and the narratives a country can spin about itself and also how individuals spin their own narratives through their own logs uh, for, in a lot of cases, for self-preservation. Uh, it's juicy stuff, CNFers. Uh, you're going to love it. Make sure you're headed to brendanomero.com hey, hey, for show notes and to sign up for the Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter. It's now on Substack. Just click the lightning bolt on my website or visit rageagainstthealgorithm.substack.com. Still first of the month, no spam, can't beat it. What with Twitter burying any tweet that has a link in it that takes you away from Twitter? I'm more inclined to just be almost unilaterally done with Twitter. So this is how we rage against the algorithm. And if you dig this show, consider sharing it with your network so we can grow the pie and get this CNF and thing into the brains of other CNFers who need the juice. You can also leave a kind review on Apple Podcasts so the wayward CNFer might say, well, shit, I'll give that a shot. Also, show is free, but it sure as hell ain't cheap, so you may want to go over to patreon.com slash CNFpod and consider dropping a few bucks in the hat if you glean some value from what we churn and burn here at CNFpod HQ. Okay, so you know David Grant as a staff writer for The New Yorker, the author of The Lost City of Z, Killers of the Flower Moon, The White Darkness, and The Devil in Sherlock Holmes. It's safe to say he's one of the literary heroes worth meeting because he's a sweet and generous person. He's one of the good guys. And I know you're going to dig this conversation with a first-team All-American writer in David Grant. So let's hit it. Let's get right after it. Riff. That was a good time, and it's uh, 
Were, were you, um, at what point did the wager get on your radar? Uh, was it like during Flower Moon time or slightly after? Uh, so, yeah, so uh, Killers of Flower Moon had come out, and I probably didn't find the wager to a little bit. Before the Killers of the Killers of Flower Moon was done, but before it was published, I had come across an 18th century journal by John Byron, who was a midshipman on the wager. And it was this kind of very old journal. It was kind of written this stilted prose. But while I was reading it, I kept kind of, you know, being seized by these various phrases like, you know, mutiny and typhoons and the descriptions of a shipwreck on an island and how the castaways kind of descended into this Hobbesian state of depravity. And yeah. um, I realized that the this journal kind of held the clue to this kind of extraordinary saga. And that's where things really began. And then, of course, the thing that really drew me to the story was, you know, after I had come across that journal, I began to do more research and I was kind of I was fascinated with not only what happened on the island when when these British crew and officers were shipwrecked, um, but also what had happened when several of them made it back to England and they were summoned to face a court martial for their alleged crimes. And uh, if they didn't tell a convincing tale, they were going to get hanged after everything they'd been through. And so this kind of provoked this furious war over the truth where they released their various competing accounts. And there were there was disinformation and misinformation. And I swear, even allegations of a kind of 18th century version of fake news. And of course, there was a a, there was a, a fight over who would get to tell the history and efforts by those empower to cover up the sinful parts and scandalous parts of a nation's past. So I thought even though the story took place in the 18th century, the thing that really drew me to it was it felt in many ways like a parable for our own times. Yeah, there's a there's a moment like very early in the book and it really rhymes and echoes with something at at the very end and it's what you're kind of, what you're getting at that uh you know you're right you know we all impose some coherence some meaning on the chaotic events of our existence then go through the raw images of our memories electing uh burning erasing and then like later in the book too it's um just as people tailor their stories to serve their interests revising erasing embroidering so do nations so you find it like at the micro level of these people massaging things for their own good and then you're like on the macro level of of nations doing it so it really does kind of go right up the ladder so to speak yes it does and um and so i mean just to tell a listener a little bit about the you know kind of what happened and then we should talk more about this because i do think it's such an interesting theme and 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 what makes the story so interesting was um but you know these men of the wager and there were boys as well were part of an expedition that set out uh, in 1740 in pers- on a secret mission to try to capture a Spanish galleon filled with treasure, which was known as the prize of all the ocean. Believe it or not, that was part of the war mission that a real whiff of piracy about it. And yeah. they set out as part of a squadron and they have to cross the Atlantic and then they're supposed to round Cape Horn then head into the Pacific and try to intercept the galleon. But almost immediately, everything begins to go wrong. While they are trying to get around Cape Horn, they have to battle typhoons and tidal waves, 
many of the men begin to suffer uh, scurvy, hundreds of them uh, perish. And then ultimately the ships are scattered around the horn and the wager ends up alone by itself. And it ends up wrecking off the Chilean coast of Patagonia on this desolate island. And at first they hope that this island may be their salvation. Uh, but it turns out that the island was freezing cold and it was constantly wet and raining and or sleeting. And worst of all, there was virtually no food. One British officer described it as the kind of place where the soul of man dies in them. And gradually mm-hmm. uh, they begin to descend uh, into, into chaos and to warring factions uh, as they struggle to survive. So that's the kind of basic synopsis uh, of, of, of what happened. Yeah, and what's uh, particularly uh, riveting about it as well is, well, for one, like the cover, the, the cover illustration or like painting of the book is 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 amazing. Granted, I have a digital copy, but I've seen copies of uh, or covers images of the book, and you get a sense of the incredibly turbulent ocean and how this this warship, which isn't much longer than home to second base on a baseball yeah, field yeah. is a little bit longer, yeah. you know, maybe like home plate to the outfield grass, yeah. so to speak, yeah. like straight ahead. And I'm just thinking of anytime I've been on a cruise, the ocean can, will throw a cruise ship around. And I'm thinking like, how are they even staying afloat out, out there and in, in the waters on, on these, on these sailboats yeah. that do have that, you know, do, uh, yeah. On the, on these boats that rely primarily on wind, it was just really, just harrowing to to put yourself on the on the boat with them. Yeah, the the wager was about 123 feet, had three masts. There was on board uh, 250 men and boys, which was nearly twice the amount that the ship was designed for. So the people were just packed in there. The sailors would sleep, you know, in hammocks between cannons, and you know when the waves would you know come, their elbows and knees would jostle. That's how close they were uh, mm. together. And they have to cross Cape Horn. And for people who aren't familiar with Cape Horn, and I wasn't—I mean, I had always heard that Cape Horn is like a terrifying place for sailors, but until I did a little more research, I didn't fully grasp how terrifying it really is. Um, it, you know, it's the only place on the Earth. It's at the very tip of South at, at South America, at the end of the Americas, and it's the only place uh, on the globe where the Oceans flow around the entire earth uninterrupted, meaning uninstructed uh, by any other bit of land. They, so the waves build over about 13,000 miles accumulating wow. force. It has the strongest currents on earth, and uh, it has waves that can dwarf a 90-foot mast. And then there are the winds, <laughs> I should say. Then there are the winds. The winds can accelerate to, uh, you know, they often accelerate to hurricane force and they can reach as much as 200 miles per hour. And so when the squadron was coming around the horn, they were just battered day and night by these storms um, until the ships are effectively starting to break apart. And as you said, you know, those waves could toss a cruise boat around. Well, they would toss these these vessels around that they would have to, you know, in those days, you had to climb the mass to uh, work the sails. 
And so they would send people up on the mast. The top men would climb as high as 100 feet on these masts. And they would cling to the yards, which were like the booms, which the sails unfurl from on the mast. And when the ships were rocking, it, they were rocking so much that the tips of the booms or the tips of these yards where the men are clinging like spiders to are touching the water. And they're just swinging back and forth like a pendulum. There's one point where the storms were so rough, they couldn't fly any sails. And one of the uh, commanding officers orders his men to climb the mass so that they can use their bodies like sails. And so the cool. people climb the mass. They're using their bodies like these concave sails so that the captain can at least have enough resistance to be able to maneuver uh, and turn the ship some rather than being just pitch wildly in the waves. And it actually succeeds, but one of the men is tossed and thrown into the churning ocean and the others can see him swimming after them. And there's no way to turn a ship like that around in the storm. It would take far too long and they know he's still alive and they can see him for a long time, just swimming desperately to catch up until eventually he disappears and vanishes into the sea. Yeah, it's uh, your description of the Drake Passage is it, it just sounds like a pure hell. And it's just like why anyone would try to contest that, given that they they kind of knew what they were up against going in there as a as a squadron. Uh, but it was like, you know, you're there and you're recreating this whole thing. And you know, there is like sort of the, the mothership and the wager was certainly one of the smaller ones. And I again, just in the way that you evoke it, you you can almost you can feel the palpable helplessness of the men on the wager as like the other ships are getting away or they can't see them beyond the waves and then before you know it they they're alone and on their own just at the chaotic whims of the Drake Passage. Yes. And on top of that, they knew they would need every person on board if they were going to keep these ships afloat and to um you know battle against these elements. And right in the midst of these typhoons uh, be, shortly before they all separated, uh, or so a few weeks before they all separated, uh, they begin to come down with the illness of scurvy. And many of the men can no longer rise from their hammocks. Their hair begins to fall out. Their teeth fall out. The the tissue kind of that seems that connects their bones seem to be coming undone. There was there was one man who had been on a battle fifty years earlier who had fractured a limb uh, in that battle. It had obviously over five decades long since healed. Um, but mm -hmm. then it kind of just snaps in the same place. It just refractures again. Uh, and some of the men were described, uh, one, one seaman observed that the disease got into the seaman's brains and they went raving mad. And so while all this is going on, uh, they are battling this disease as well. I call it the storm within the storm. And many of the men have to be just tossed overboard and hundreds and hundreds of them perished uh, from from scurvy uh, at this time. Regarding scurvy, you know, which we we now know the, the causes of it. Uh, but in the in the end notes, which I you know, skimmed through and I, to see your commentary on various things that you cited and some of the scurvy was kind of attested to, you know, possibly you know, laziness. And a lot of times the, the commanding officers would, you know, kick and beat them to try to like 
get a, you know, like, get up, you lazy asses. Like, you know, you're not suffering. You're just lazy. And meanwhile, it's just like their bodies are just like breaking down through vitamin deficiency. Yeah, they didn't. Back then, they didn't know. It was interesting because I was doing this research and writing about this during the pandemic. And so it actually made it feel very kind of electric to me and, and real because, you know, it was the very beginning of the pandemic. And with scurvy, they didn't know, you know, it, the disease was named, they they referred to it as scurvy, and it actually killed more mariners than than kind of all the other disastrous elements possibly, like, you know, including storms or battles or other diseases combined. More people in the age of seal died of scurvy. So they knew about it, they were terrified by it, it was, but it was the great enigma of the age of seal. They did not know what caused it. So you know, some people thought it was caused by your breath or by bad air, you know, something malignant in the air. Uh, and others, as as you described, some of the officers believed it was just a, a product of laziness among the seamen, which is kind of preposterous. Uh, and so yeah. these poor men <laughs> who are suffering and dying, you know, are being kicked and lambasted for their uh, lack of vigor. <laughs> um, so, uh, and of course, as you said, the, the, the cure you know, it was really so simple. They just didn't know it was, it was a vitamin C deficiency and it was a deficiency from their diets. They didn't have refrigeration on these ships. And so they didn't bring a lot of fruit and vegetables. So it was very deficient in their diet. And this squadron actually stopped in, in uh, Brazil shortly before they then headed down and to round the horn. And when they stopped there, you know, there was an abundance of fruit and vegetables, including limes, uh, which would have saved their lives, but they didn't know that at the time. And what's uh, fascinating about the the way you were able to construct this book is uh, th- primarily through, or at least significantly, uh, a part of the recipe were, were these log books that most a lot of the mariners kept for themselves. And it's uh, amazing given how rough the weather and the conditions were that these logbooks endured or that they even thought to keep them given that they had so little else to, uh, I don't know, so little strength. And so you figure, you figure logbooks might, I don't know, might be sacrificed, yeah. but yeah. it turns out it was like the thing that they hung on to. Yeah. So on, in the Navy, the, the uh, captain, Lieutenant were required, uh, you know, by the Admiralty for, against penalty to keep a daily log, of each, you know, occurrences, locations, you know, the winds, um, and then descriptions of kind of any remarkable incidents or mishaps. And um, and so they kept those. And other uh, members of the ship would also keep log books on their own, even though it wasn't required by law or or journals of some sort. And and it is amazing. I mean, these journals, you know, you can go to a British archive, (laughs) you know, and you can, you know, pull a logbook from the 1740s, some of them that made it all the way around the world, some of them that survived the typhoons, survived the scurvy outbreaks, documents that survived even the shipwreck. And so you're just, it is one of the most astonishing thing to read these. And of course, they have a plethora of information and research. You know, the empire was very keen on documenting um, uh, and recording what was seen on these travels into less familiar areas as the British Empire uh, kind of sought ruthlessly to expand its reaches. So that was one of the purpose of the logbooks. And then the logbooks were also mandated by the Admiral to be kept because they were also kind of evidentiary that if anything ever happened, if there was ever a mishap or a wreck or, let's say, a mutiny, 
these documents would be entered later into a court martial as as evidentiary material. So they were very important. And then they they became and kind of held the roots. They would out of these logbooks would would grow a great deal of travel literature as you know, first the seamen began to put more of their individualism into the logbooks and the journals and began to publish them, especially the officers. These became kind of staples of, of travel literature. And so and, and so so the logbooks were in many ways the seeds of, of European uh, and especially British literature and travel literature. What became the the challenge for you to to build scene scenes and to string together the narrative from a lot of disparate accounts uh, from from these logs and you know just trying to make a make make that make it very cohesive from a lot of you know yeah piecemeal piecemeal things yeah so I chose to focus as much as possible through uh, three fascinating members of the wagers company so that it would kind of cohere around each of them and be filtered through the perspective. And I did this to show how they were each trying to shape their stories in many ways to emerge as the hero of them, uh, to live with what they had done or hadn't done. And of course, when several of them made it back to England and they face a court martial, you know, they really need to shape these stories because their lives will depend on it because they could be hanged for their alleged crimes on the island when they were marooned. And so the three people I focus on was the captain of the wager, uh, a man named David Cheap, who was somebody who always kind of struggled on land. He was kind of plagued by debts and chased by creditors, but he always found refuge on a on a warship. And it was his dream to always become a captain. And during this voyage, after one of the commanders dies of illness, he gets promoted and he finally becomes the captain of the wager, the captain of his own warship and achieves his, his great churning ambition. That is, of course, until the wreckage. And the other perspective is from John Bulkley, who was the gunner on the wager. And though he was perhaps or arguably the most skilled seaman on board. He was certainly seen that way, and he was an instinctive leader. He did not come from the aristocracy, and so he could never rise to become captain of his own ship. And the third uh, perspective is from John Byron, the 16-year-old midshipman on the wager uh, when when the expedition began. And in many ways, he's our eyes and ears onto this world. He's training to become an officer. He has He's filled with all these romantic notions of a life at sea. And, of course, as the voyage goes on and everything goes to hell, he has to come of age amid the horrors that were unleashed, not only by the elements, but also by his own shipmates. And uh, what makes him even more interesting or, or also makes him very interesting is that he would become the grandfather of the poet Lord Byron, whose poetry was very influenced uh, by John Byron's written account of this voyage. And because the logs survive, uh, you know certain members uh, live or make or make it certainly make it farther than others in the course of of the journey of this of this what becomes like an adventure story. Um, but you're still creating a tremendous amount of, of tension and you don't necessarily, you know, it doesn't feel like a spoiler alert that the, that you kind of know that these guys survive. So like for you as a writer, how are, how are you pulling, 
how do you pull that off? You you do that extremely well, and it's uh, I wonder how you still maintain the tension, even though we have these logs, so we kind of know like who makes it yeah. back to England. Well, you try to like telling the story from the vantage point of people who did not know if they were going to survive, and so they woke up every day with the terror. They woke every day with a desire to try to survive and to try to figure out how would they survive? How would they survive the voyage? And then, of course, how would they survive once they were marooned on this desolate island without food? How would they build an encampment? Um, where would they find food? Would they work together? Or would they turn on each other? And so if you describe history as it's unfolding through the eyes of the people who are experiencing it, it inherently has a tension hmm. because it has the tension that they do not know if at any moment they will perish. And so that's the way I try to tell the stories, not from, you know, some, some historians, you, you obviously have the benefit of hindsight and you eventually bring the knowledge you've learned over time. And obviously, you know, different perspective or modern perspective to the story. But I try to tell the stories not in reverse engineering them with this kind of godlike omniscience of knowing everything. I try to tell the stories as they actually were experienced by the people who are living them. And um, that in itself is always inherent with mystery. And in the case of these uh, individuals, you know, a real question of whether they would survive, uh, you know, the next hour or the next day. Yeah, given the conditions they were subject to, even on the we can even say the relative comforts of the wager itself, because because once they were marooned on wage, what would become Wager Island, suddenly the the wager felt like you know an, an ocean line, like a carnival cruise ship. You didn't think it could get worse, and then it gets worse. <laughs> yeah, it's just I, I'm just thinking of is something of the not for lack of a better term, like the primitive clothing, and then everything is breaking down or tearing. They're in tatters. They're in poor health and it is cold and it's snowy and it's ice and sleet and rain and wind. And here they are stranded somewhere. And yet they a chunk of them, a significant chunk, are able to survive. So, you know, what did that tell you about, you know, just the the resilience of of uh, of the human spirit and these men in particular? Yeah, uh, it's what's so interesting is in many ways, the 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 island becomes kind of laboratory that tests the human condition under extreme circumstances. Yeah. And inevitably it, it reveals the secret nature of each man, the good and the bad. And um, you can see in our, you know, you're really struck for, let's just, you know, for example, someone like John Bulkley, he just has an extraordinary level of resilience and ingenuity and a certain ruthless cunning to survive. And so many of them men gravitate toward him. Um, and it's kind of spellbinding to see how he endures what he is able to overcome when many others are giving up and just, you know, basically waiting for death to take them. He is plotting, scheming, building, constructing, doing whatever he can, foraging uh, to try <laughs> to, to, to try to live. So, you know, you're quite taken uh, by the resilience. And then, you know, one moment you maybe, you know, you know, admire somebody's or, or, or you know, resilience or these kind of great acts of bravery. And then, you know, a moment later, you may recoil 
at their shocking brutality. And you often can see both. They are all very deeply human who are being tested under these extreme circumstances. So you see on that island, you see both acts of kind of extraordinary courage, acts of heroism, acts of gallantry. And you also see acts of brutality and murder and mayhem and cannibalism. So you see it all play out uh, under these circumstances. Yeah. And speaking of uh, it being like a a laboratory, you know, you do have like a something of a medical set piece where you do cite this study of of people who were starved like in more controlled conditions but what you go on to write is like the report uh you know summarized the results of the study and noted that the volunteers were shocked at quote like how thin their moral and social veneers seemed to be like once they reached that threshold of yeah. desperation and it was like Right there, like in modern clinical terms, like is an explanation for what these men endured on Wager Island. Yeah, you know, food deprivation, like sleep deprivation, can just corrode and undermine and challenge and test the wits of a human being. And, you know, we know that just even when we're a little hungry, how we get, or if we haven't eaten for, you know, half a day or we're getting low blood sugar. Imagine if day after day after day, you're only having a tiny little bit of rations, you have a little bit of flour maybe, or you have a couple muscles and that's all you have to eat. You can imagine what that would do, not just to the physical body, which begins to wither, but also it has tremendous effects on the psychology of humans and it can cause people to behave selfishly and cruelly and wantonly. Um, and you certainly see that in many of the people trapped on the island. Yeah, you'd get you'd get a few who might try to steal just an extra handful of flour or something to to eat. And then, like when that starts happening, then everything then the seams are really starting to break loose, and you start to see a truly like Lord of the Fliesian type thing take place. Yeah, you really see them fractured into different groups, and you know. And what's interesting too is they're, you know, they're they're in this kind of state of nature. They one of them I think refers to it as a state of nature, and you know, in that they are trying to figure out how to govern and what should. Well, even while they're starving, they have these kind of philosophical debates about the nature of leadership and loyalty, and also governance. And so, when crime begins to happen, when when some of these desperate, uh, starving castaways begin to steal, um, taking out the bits of rations that are held in a communal store tent under guard. Um, And in effect, when you are starving, that is, you know, treated as a heinous crime. It's not like you, you know, just breaking into someone's house with endless food and taking a piece of bread. You're taking the last rations that may keep people alive. So it was seen as almost a murderous crime or what's seen as a murderous crime by taking these foods. So they have to kind of come up with questions about punishment and how will they punish them. They decide to hold these makeshift trials on the island where they're kind of, I don't want to call them kangaroo courts because they follow certain rules, but you know, they're pretty quick and pretty prompt and they're very brutal in their, in the, in their punishments. And you see, you know, you just see the growing sense of chaos one group of uh, castaways kind of breaks off and they're referred to as the seceders and they kind of roam the island marauding. And then there is a a faction led by Captain Cheap who is desperately clinging to his command and power who believes he should remain in charge because he was the captain of the ship 
and also believes their only chance of survival is to maintain the cohesion that existed on the ship and therefore the kind of strict military hierarchy, naval hierarchy and rules. And then you have John Bulkley, that instinctive leader who spouts phrases that certainly resonate with many Americans today. He would use phrases like life and liberty. And more and more of the men are beginning to gravitate toward him. Uh, and he is now emerging uh, as a commander in his own right. What's really uh, fascinating in, you know, in the story as well is how you know you imbue, like, uh, like, like a moment ago when we were talking about that starvation study, you know, being able to like imbue that degree of context on the on these men from the future, um, but also the the amount of you know, this is sort of completely unrelated to the the men, but it is a pretty cool fact about just shipbuilding and how much board feed it took and 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 stuff. Those little facts that you uh, that you kind of fold in there. Like, do you find that those are those are great things that you kind of stumble across over the course of the research, and you're like. Oh, sometimes maybe when my story beats are feeling a little thin, it's like, you know, this is a great way where I can kind of inject some cool facts that still keep the story moving, entertaining, but also kind of, uh, you know, it helps, you know, space out the action a little. Yeah, you know, I mean, I am so, I can really geek out. <laughs> I, I like, yeah. I become, I, you know, I know not, most of the subjects I know virtually nothing about when I begin. I didn't know anything. Certainly didn't know much about the 18th century. Uh, I don't remember anything from school and what nautical life was like and these ships. And so I, you know, I just have a kind of a certain curiosity. So I will become like endlessly fascinated with the building of the ships and how they had to load them and the tons of foods. And, you know, I mean, you know, the, the, the ships were both like the most sophisticated instruments of their day. And yet they're, you know, they're made of very perishable um, materials are made mostly of wood. Um, and so, you know, just all of that, getting these ships ready, uh, setting them out to sea, these ships that were both the homes to, to many seamen that were like their families, and yet they're also these lethal instruments of imperialism at the same time with these cannons. So usually to me, I don't really separate them, those sections out from the narrative. I think to me, they're just as fascinating. So yeah. I will I will end up doing a ton of research um, as I try to understand things. And for me, you know, the, the book is kind of told in different parts. But the first part of the book, I needed to describe the construction of the world. Because if you didn't understand the floating civilization, if you didn't understand what these worlds were like, how they were built how the people survived and existed on them, the societies, the games, the the regimen, the hierarchy. If you didn't understand that, you wouldn't then understand what happens when that world begins to crack apart. And so part of my mission was to build the world so that I can then also document its disintegration. And so I, you know, for me, the biggest issue tends to be more, I will do so much research and be so interested I will write long on these descriptions and the challenge is just to peer them back so that they don't overwhelm the narrative. Um, and so that's, that's usually more of the challenge rather than me saying, Oh, this is a part that needs something. It tends to be more that I already believe the narrative needs these sections. And then it's just a question of distilling it to its, to its essence and then finding the facts that convey it and, and are kind of astonishing and losing some of the other material that'll make it feel 
lose its propulsion or its sense of narrative nonfiction of kind of moving forward. But, you know, I, I, you know, certain facts, you just, you know, they're, they just kind of grab you and seize you. I mean, I remember the fact that it would take, you know, as, as much as 4,000 pieces of uh, 4,000 trees to build one of these warships. This means 4,000 trees. So you, you come across certain facts and it's just like, wow, that is just an astonishing fact. One of the other facts that I kept finding really interesting was the language on these ships. I had no idea until I did this research how much of our language today was influenced from the language of the age of sail. Yeah. And so many of the phrases we use from, you know, a scuttlebutt, which was, you know, which a scuttlebutt uh, on a ship was a uh, a barrel filled with water and the seamen would gather about it to get their water rations. And when they're gathered about it, they were known to gossip. So that's why we use the word scuttlebutt today. Mm-hmm. Uh, under the weather, I always thought, well, under the weather, you know, I never really thought about it, but under the weather was, was on a, one of these ships when you were sick, you didn't serve on the watch. So you weren't exposed on deck. You were kept below. So you were quite literally under the weather. So you were sick, but you were quite literally under the weather above. Um, And there's so many of these phrases, you know, cut and run was when they would cut the anchor line and run downwind if they had to escape an attack. My favorite phrase was the one by Nelson, um, which came a little bit later than the wager, but was to turn a blind eye and, um, Vice Admiral Horatio Nelson had, uh, when he had seen, uh, when he, he had taken his uh, uh, telescope and he had put it up against his blind eye so that he wouldn't see the signal flag from another officer to retreat because he didn't want to retreat. So that's where to turn the blind eye com- comes from. <laughs> yeah. And there was like toe the line, like pipe down. Toe the line. It just goes on and on. I mean, there were so many more I didn't put in there. <laughs> just because they're just so, you know, uh, three sheets to the wind was when certain, uh, certain sheets, which were the ropes uh, caused the sails to, the flutter and the boat would kind of bounce about drunkenly. So all these phrases we use, um, you know, even even pipe down, uh, which was the bosun's whistle. He would blow a whistle to be quiet at night or piping hot was his whistle that the meals were ready. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's I had highlighted a lot of that stuff, too. And it blew. I, I didn't realize that that's where it came from. It was like really, really cool. It's like, oh, wow, that like that's where it came from. That's like a like to your point earlier. It's just a great fact to kind of fold in and it doesn't take much more than a few sentences balance and yeah and so for example like the language you'd ask me that question you know i probably wrote you know you know many paragraphs in the language and then ultimately i just have to distill it down so that's kind of the that's 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 more so that you don't overwhelm um overwhelm the narrative i have my my wife is always my first reader and she's a great editor and i have what i call the god no file and the god no <laughs> file is when i give her my uh, chapter after it, you know, hot off the press and show it to her. And she starts to read something. She says, God, no. And God, no, is always the section where I went on and on and on about something. <laughs> and that goes into a little folder that's called the God, no file. That's awesome. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And it's like the, the, the story proper, at least, at least on my copy is like roughly just 250 pages. And that speaks to me that especially after you read through the end notes and some of the the ex- explanation that you go through in the end notes just kind of expounding upon a particular citation you made it must have been to your to your point earlier about really culling down and trimming down like you you see the the muscle of your research in the end notes and then to see the story so 
so lean and without any glut. It must have been like a, just a tremendous exercise and restraint about what you put in and what you ultimately left out. And it, it involves a certain ruthlessness. You have to separate yourself. You know, there's the zealous reporter and researcher, which learns everything and may spend months trying to gather certain facts and then like lovingly puts them into the text as a writer. And then, you know, you finish and then uh, you have to completely shift brains and then the ruthless editor must come mm-hmm. out. And the ruthless editor has to say, you know what? You spent three months getting that fact. Do I really need that? And you often don't and you have to cut it and kill it. <laughs> it's often painful, um, but you got to do it. And, and you know, I was, you know, up until, you know, even from when the galley was printed, the first early galley to the final finished copy, there was parts I was still making sure were, you know, perfectly streamlined and balanced because I think especially for this kind of story, you need propulsion and, um, and, 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 you know, readers' attentions are, are, are short. So you really want to hold them in their grip, but you can do that, I think, and still have so much kind of wonderful, important information. I hope people reading the book will get this, kind of unrelenting story of survival and adventure um, about leadership and the human spirit and also a great deal about the human condition. Um, And then at the same time, hopefully learn a great deal about, you know, almost, you know, folded in on the, 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 the nature of war and imperialism and racism and, 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 and the kind of malignant effects um, that were present in that day and still present uh, to this day in many ways. How did visiting Wager Island for the, I believe, or that area for the uh, roughly, I, I believe, three weeks that you were in that area, like, how did that inform the the research, the reporting, and ultimately the writing of the book? Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I almost always begin a book uh, project thinking, you know, okay, especially you're doing something in the 1800s, say in the 1700s, like, okay, I'll just, this is all going to be in the archives. Mm-hmm. So I spent about two years uh, researching in archives, looking at logbooks, learning how to read logbooks, muster books, finding journals, letters, correspondence, whatever I could. Um, but after about two years, I began to wonder or fear that I could never fully understand what the castaways had undergone and experienced on the island unless I went there myself. And so that's why I decided somewhat foolishly to try to go there. (laughs) And uh, I found a, uh, uh, I found a a Chilean captain uh, who would take me there leaving from Chiloé Island, which is off the coast of Chile, traveling about 350 miles South to what is now known as Wager Island. Known after this disaster, obviously, um, and Wager Island is located in um, El Golfo de Penas, which translates as the Gulf of Sorrows, or some prefer to call it the Gulf of Pain. Mm. And when I had seen photographs of the captain's boat, I, they look really big, you know, from when I was in New York looking looking at the pictures uh, before I went. I thought, oh, this is a good big boat. And then I was I was a little bit taken aback when I got there to see that it was really pretty small uh i think less than 50 feet but and it was a it was um heated by wood and it was very top heavy mm-hmm. and it, to get water for the ship we would have to pull up along the various islands and get glacial water 
so it was very tight. And when we first set out, well, we were supposed to embark immediately, but the storms were so bad that the Coast Guard had closed the port. So for three days, we could not leave. And I started to fear we would never get off. But eventually we do. And we, we headed out. We got across the Gulf, which was very rough. But then we kind of stayed in the sheltered channels along the Patagonian coast, which is sheltered by all these fractured islands. It's very chillingly beautiful. And the waters are really calm in there. It's really, it's, it was very, uh, you know, it was peaceful, it was cold, it was winter time, um, but it was, it was not rocky. Uh, but after several days, maybe it was about the fifth day, the captain said, well, now we're going to have to go out into the ocean if we're going to get to Wager Island. And so at that point, he, we turned out and left these channels and headed out into the open, unobstructed Pacific Ocean. And it was then that I got my first glimpse of these uh, terrifying seas. The boat was just tossed about cool. so violently. I, I had, I had, um, you know, I had these, these, uh, you know, what do you call them? Those, like, those little seasick, seasick things, patches behind mm -hmm. my ear. And I had taken Dramamine. I was so, I was like drunkenly dosed on Dramamine. <laughs> and it was so rough. You could just, you had to sit on the floor. You know, it's funny when the, on the, on the expedition, many of the men described how they were just tossed about and had their limbs broken uh, during the waves. And um, my seas weren't near as that bad, but I had to just sit on the floor the whole time holding on. Otherwise I would just get tossed about. It was just like being in a tin can or like a, it felt like being in a ping pong ball, just being yeah. thrown about. <laughs> And uh, just being battered about, and um, uh, you know, I, 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 to pass the time because you just had to sit there. I listen. I put on an audio book of uh, Melville of uh, uh, Moby Dick, mm -hmm. which, uh, in retrospect, was probably not the most soothing thing to have done. But I listened to that, <laughs> and uh, the good news is the captain was extremely capable, and he managed to lead us through the Gulf of Pain, as I prefer to call it, <laughs> uh, to uh, Wager Island. And then we took a Zodiac and we went onto the island and we explored the region. And it was really so important to my writing uh, and understanding what the castaways had gone through and to just better understand their descriptions. This was not a part of the world I knew. And also let me kind of check their descriptions to see if they conform with what I saw. And they did. I mean, the island is desolate. It's barren. It's windswept. I was covered. You know, I had like, I don't know how many layers of, you know, long johns and, you know, coats and sweaters and a wool hat and thick gloves and boots. And they, the castaways, you know, just had a few scraps of clothing that slowly disintegrated. And I was so cold. I could only imagine because it's this damp cold. You know, it's not like it's zero. It wasn't zero degrees. It's probably about 30 degrees. But it's constantly raining and windy. And so it's just this damp cold that kind of gets under your skin. So I could only, you know, it gave me just some sense of, you know, the fact that many of them were no doubt facing hypothermia, uh, among all their other uh, issues they had to battle with. And uh, I could, we could find virtually no food. You know, they described not being able to find food on the island. There, there are no animals other than birds that kind of, you know, fly about around the ring of the island. And, you know, we found a few sprouts of celery, like the kind that the castaways had eaten, which they didn't really know why, but had the benefit of curing their scurvy yeah. because of some of the vitamins in it. And being there and kind of seeing how hard it was, how hard it was to even walk across the island because of the, it's very mountainous and misty. And then between the mountains is this kind of boggy terrain that's covered with foliage. It's, it's like trying to march through a hedge. 
you know, I began to understand why, why I could fathom that, why that British officer had described it as a place in which the soul of man dies. You know? <laughs> now in, uh, in Lost City of Z and in, uh, in Killers of the Flower Moon, there are moments where you enter the story and uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. It was like the last third and then Lost City of Z. I, I can't remember, but like you kind of you come in there just to kind of give a sense of what these areas are like. And similar. So you like you went to Wager Island here and I was I was wondering, I'm like, is David going to kind of enter the story here just to kind of bring us in? And uh, but in this story, you don't. So I was wondering you know, what the sort of creative decision was between you know, between being there and not being there as like, uh, you know, a real yeah, presence. So, yeah, you know, I, um, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't, uh, I, I never obviously see myself as a memoirist and I, I try to put myself into a story only if I think it will enhance and, and, and help illuminate the story or the truth of the story. If it's essential or necessary, mm-hmm. And for Pillars of the Flower Moon, I'm not a character, but I'm just kind of a cipher reporter to try to be present, to show the reader, to kind of be a stand-in, to show the reader what things are like today in the Osage Nation and also share some of the various bits of reporting and research that had long since come out about these murders um, and that helped illuminate that there was this much larger, deeper conspiracy that was causing the death of so many Osage. And so you could meet with the descendants and hear their voices, hear the voices of the descendants about the murder victims um, and also, um, in some cases, the murderers. So I thought it was important. And with The Lost City of Z, I kind of alternated my own expedition into the jungle against the expedition of this kind of Edwardian, Victorian Edwardian explorer, Percy Fawcett. And it was a way to kind of illuminate how the world had changed to such an extent. And I thought also to bring some levity because, mm-hmm. um, because you know, Fawcett was such a severe, uh, extreme individual. And, you know, here, here I was this kind of, uh, you know, the, the like, you know, like the Magoo of explorers, half blind, <laughs> not knowing what I was doing, getting lost, hates camping, hates bugs. So <laughs> I thought it kind of just, it, I just thought it would help the narrative. And, you know, you could suddenly compare a description of Fawcett where he was seeing, you know, you know, you know, days and days of trying to hack through jungle. And then I would get to certain parts and, and there was no jungle there. It looked like Nebraska because everything had been deforested. So it was a real way to kind of bring you up to the present and, and to show how the past echoes with the present and the pr- present reverberates back. And for uh, the wager, you know, I wondered if in the epilogue, maybe I would bring in my own uh, visit. But in the end, I felt like you know, there were so many stories going on and in a way I authored the whole story (laughs) already. So shifting into the first person just felt like the wrong intrusion. So there's a kind of a nice, I hope a nice passage at the end where I, you're kind of seeing an omniscient description of the island um, and, and what can be found there today. And clearly that's me, but I never use the word I. And so you're getting to see it, but um, somehow the intrusion of the eye in this narrative felt like it would be more jarring and not quite right because in a way there had already been an eye in the way I kind of had organized the story and shaped it. So I didn't think a breaking with that with an eye would work, but it's always a decision. Um, I'm always reticent um, to use the eye, uh, although I, I have, and I will if, if I think it will help a story. 
the um oh shoot i kind of lost my train of thought come on come on brendan where where this uh oh here here it is there it is i, I found it i found the thread it got away from me for a second david um you know given that you're uh you know that I'm, i and many people and you, you might balk at this but like consider consider you a master at this and like you know i look up to what you do and i'm like man if i could just write a book 25 percent as good as yours i'd be like i'd be right there i'd be pretty damn content with myself and yet all writers have find difficulties in the process and things that they still find hard no matter how great they are so so for you like what do you still find uh, you know, what gives you headaches? What What is still difficult for you that you that you wrestle with when you're, you know, writing these incredible books you, you put out? Well, it's very nice of you to say. I, I, I will say that I wish I could say it got easier. Yeah. <laughs> I oh, always yeah. hope it would get easier. And I haven't found as I've gotten older, it's gotten easier. I think I'm more skilled just from repetition. Mm-hmm. And I kind of have a better understanding of what I need to do and the process and, you know, why structure is important and, um, you know, certain techniques about reporting and finding materials. But ultimately, the challenges of finding the right story, figuring out how to organize it, what's the best way to tell it, and then to somehow convey that with words that bring visual images through words and bring to life a story. To me, that's always enormously challenged. In this case, you know, of of um, each book has its own, I think, certain particular challenges. You know, for me, um, how to make a story set in the 18th century feel alive and modern in its in its prose, in its style, or in its theme, so that you so that it resonates. And um, because when you read a lot of the the narratives, you know, they're often written in this old convoluted English with that, you know, that the 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 Fs, I think they're called Fs, or I don't know what they are. The S's don't look like S's. They look like Fs. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, you, you know, it's just kind of old archaic English. And so, you know, how do I breathe life into that? And and so that becomes a challenge. But it but but it's in a way it's they are rewarding challenges. Like each project has its own, you know, how was I gonna learn about the the nautical language so I could describe it to the point where it was a little more effortless, where I actually understood everything they were saying. You know, I had to go to school basically and teach myself uh everything about these ships and the language they used and the clothing they wore and the foods they ate. So, you know, they're they're kind of they they are challenges and they could be very frustrating at times, but they are also really rewarding. Because they're, you know, you, you, you know, once you, they're kind of entries into these these hidden worlds, and I'm always kind of curious about them. So, but the challenges, you know, I would say especially with writing, you know, writing is always hard for me. It's always been hard for me. It'll always be hard for me. Um, it takes me a lot of times and a lot of revisions. I know more natural writers, and for me, it's lots of good. My 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 writing is a product of endless revision. You know, I, I, I rework a sentence over and over. Uh, so, and also finding the voice for a book. You know, I think each book has a different voice um, and a different, you know, almost a different style to some extent. For Killers of the Flower Moon, I wanted a very restrained style. Um, the, it was a really, you know, you're describing one of the worst racial injustices and one of the more sinister crimes in American history. And so there I really wanted to be restrained and not get in the way of any of the facts and 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 to have a very almost um uh i don't want to say withdrawn style but just just 
you know, a great deal of restraint. And with, with the wager, um, you know, I could have more, I don't want to say fun because they're not going through fun, but I could, I felt like I could have more a vibrant tone and descriptions of life at sea and what they were going through. Oh yeah. There were little yeah moments th- peppered throughout the wager, for instance, where you might uh, have a little thing broken off by M dashes. You'd be like, like, look over there and like exclamation point. And as you're like, there, there's a boat or there's land and, and, and you, you get a certain, a different kind of pulse of energy uh, through that. And I was like, when I see moments like that in a book of this nature, I'm like, Oh, it looks like David's having a little fun right here. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. And I felt that, you know, I, I, I felt that, that room and, 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 you know, it's a, it's funny cause it's a, well, not funny. It's in some ways, I mean, it's, it's, you know, they're, they're undergoing um, so much hardship, but you know, the, the, the power of what they're going through, the descriptions of the sea and the sick. I mean, it's, it's so alive and so vivid what these souls went through uh, on this expedition. And so, you know, the material itself just lent itself in a very dramatic nature because it is a very dramatic saga like you like i you when you do i always say that truth is stranger than fiction probably not always true but um it often is and this is one of those stories where where you're like i can't believe now this happened and then you're like oh oh my god now that happened i mean just you know just imagine this like they get to the island after this expedition you know they've they've been through they've battled typhoons they've battled um scurvy they they have to navigate without knowing their longitude by dead reckoning then they shipwreck on an island. Then they begin to starve. Then they begin to turn on each other. Then they descend into a Lord of the Flies. There's murders, there's mutiny, and all those things. And then several of them have to get off the island and they go on these castaway voyages. <laughs> and one of the castaway voyages is nearly 3,000 miles in this little boat where they're packed so tightly they can't even move. And and, uh, and 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 some of them survive. I mean, it's one of the great feats of navigation and endurance and resilience. So it's it's just you just I can't believe it that. And then you're like, OK, it's over. Right. No. Now they get to England <laughs> and they're summoned to face this court martial. And after everything they've been through, they could be hanged. So it's just you just it is one of these uh, just inherently dramatic tales. Yeah, and it's like they're they feel like a couple of them are home free, and then like then cheap gets back, and you're like, how the hell did this guy get back into the picture? Yes, every time you think the story's over and they've kind of escaped, and like you know, oops, somebody emerges, and not only emerges, it emerges with a very different story to tell, and so then it becomes a war over which story will prevail. I know you've. Uh... Your editor, Daniel Zaleski at The New Yorker, he's worked with you on a lot of pieces, helps you with your books, I think, as well. And when you're talking about earlier the, the ruthless nature that you have to be with, you know, with uh, with uh, with editing down things, you know, what are some of the conversations you have with him? Uh, because I, I understand he's just he's so skilled at what he does. You know, when I've spoken with Patrick Radden Keith, it's, it's it's a similar thing. And, uh, you know, you have the benefit and the privilege of working with him as well. So, like, what are those conversations like as you're, you know, looking to just distill the best possible story, which you you guys so often stick the landings on? You should get Daniel on your podcast. I would love to talk to him. Yeah. (laughs) He, he, you know, I think, you know, he is – you know, he has been my magazine editor since, uh, you know, from the early, my early days at the New Yorker. 
And, um, you know, the first thing is, is he's just an extraordinary reader. You know, he just can read a manuscript or read a magazine piece and see it, see what it needs, see where its weaknesses, see where it could be deepened, see where you, you know, the flaws where you need more reporting. So he just, he's, you know, I think to be a good editor, you have to be a really fine reader. And few of us are. Yeah. I mean, he really is just such a, such a precise reader. I mean, he just... He, he can spot a hole in a story, <laughs> you know, or if you're, if, if you have not, you know, you know, completed the circle, he's, uh, you know, he won't let you get away with anything. You know? um, and then, you know, I think over the years, I've just kind of been, I've been instilled with so many lessons from him just about precision in my writing, um, making things clear. Um, he's just so good at that as well and good with structure um, yeah, he's just, he's supremely gifted. And, I, and I've really been blessed because, you know, I've, I've had Daniel, um, as my, you know, magazine editor, and then he helps me with the books. And then I've had the same book editor and Bill Thomas for all of my books. Um, he's the publisher at Doubleday and the editor in chief. I think that's his title. Um, and, uh, you know, he is, he also is just, you know, an amazing reader, you know, he can read a manuscript see where its weaknesses are, where you need more research, where you may need less material. Um, very good at terms of like how to structure a story. I mean, structuring a story to me is really important. Yeah. It's kind of one of the secrets, I think, of good narratives. So is everything kind of in the right place? You know, sometimes he might say, oh, you know, I would move a chapter. And you're like, really? And he's like, yeah, I would move the chapter. And, and he's usually right. So, so I've been really, you know, you know, I didn't always have that in my career, but I've really been blessed in the last, you know, both, you know, at the New Yorker and, 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 and at Doubleday, my publishing house, you know, just to work with two of the finest editors and to be able to work with them consistently. And you develop rhythms by being able to work with editors over time. They know you, they know your rhythms, they know your flaws, your weaknesses, they know your strengths. And you build up a trust. I think, you know, that's so key to the relationship is having a sense of trust. You know, if Daniel or Bill tells me something, I have to listen. I mean, I, I, I might not always agree, but I will always interrogate myself about it. Because if they're saying it, well, there's a good reason. That's amazing. Well, well, David, there's always one question I love ending these conversations on uh, of late. And that's uh, I, I like to ask the guests for a recommendation of some kind for the listeners out there. And that could be anything you're excited about uh, that you're trying, be it a, a, a podcast or a TV show or a brand of coffee or whatever it is. And so I'd just I'd extend that to you. I have a dual recommendation, which awesome. is uh, which is not always the case, but I and it kind of worked in reverse order. Normally, I read a book first, then I discover if it's been adapted into a show or movie, I may watch it. In this case, it was the reverse. I started watching on uh, Apple uh, TV the series Slow Horses, which is this spy series um, with Gary Oldman, who's just terrific. And so I watched this and I love the series. So now I've gone back and I'm now reading the actual novels that it's based on. And they're wonderful. And so I'm now into the third book. And they're written by uh, an author named Mick Heron. And they're just kind of just delightfully entertaining, smart, 
wickedly funny in many ways, uh, spy novels. And uh, so for me, they've been my, they've just been a great escape of late. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, well, David, this is such a thrill to get to talk to you again uh, about, you know, your work and how you go about the work and this amazing book that uh, will just, it's, it's just going to be a ton of fun. Adventure stories are so wonderful. And this one definitely takes us to, to some, some, some uh, painful places and it's such a such a great study of uh, human nature and just beautifully told so just thanks for coming on the show again and thanks for the work it's my pleasure thank you so much and and hopefully you know it won't be five more years till the next one <laughs> ah, thanks Ian Efferson thanks to David for coming back on the show I'd love to have him back on in between books. You know, that's a really ripe time to have a guest back on the show before they get into promotion mindsets and they're in research writing darkness of the soul mind. That's a really great place to podcast from. Anyway, very grateful for him coming back and spending some time with uh with us, right? If you like this conversation as much as I did, and I did, consider sharing it and tagging me in the show on Twitter, ugh, at CNF Pod and at Creative Nonfiction Podcast on Instagram. Ugh. This show will only grow because of you. As you know, I'm something of a nobody, so it's the validation of your endorsements that makes the needle move. There's so much content out there, so many old shows and many more new ones, and this show will only survive the pod fade if you celebrate it, so long as it's worth celebrating. Now, also, you can consider going to patreon.com, throw a few bucks in the tip jar patreon.com slash cnfpod show is free ain't cheap yeah i was debating whether to share this or not but i i figure i will it's not a writing anecdote uh so you know for for those who stick around you can skip this or, or not it's up to you not really a happy story so three weeks ago we adopted a new dog lachlan he's a I was really, we were really attracted to him because he's like, you know, Catahoula mix a lot like our uh, producer Hank here, uh, but about 20 pounds lighter, uh, about a year, year and a half old, maybe strong, <laughs> strong, strong, physically strong, strong headed, very demanding, barked in your face until you paid attention to him. So ignoring him while he was throwing these tantrums, uh, tested your resolve. That's for sure. Um, he was over, very overbearing and um, to producer Kevin, so we always needed to run interference because she doesn't like to roughhouse, and he sensed that she was weaker, and he would gang up on her, so we had to keep them apart. Over the weekend, uh, he and Hank got into a real nasty fight over a purple squeaky ball. Like I threw it, and it got wedged up against a fence, and they both hit it at the same time, and oh boy, it was mayhem. Uh, they go, they're going after each other. Hank's got him pinned and it's like no blood was drawn. So got him separated. Yeah. But it took, it took some, took some doing to do it. Uh, two days later, um, inside the house, they were standing beside each other and suddenly they just erupt into each other. No food or toys, nothing, no resources involved. You know, we checked Lachlan and he had a nasty cut from where Hank bit him above his left eye. So we knew we, there's a problem brewing here. We separated the two. You know, been giving them more exercise anyway because Lachlan was just super high energy, just needed needed to get out, run a lot, walk a lot. So 
even walking the pair together on leashes, it worked. Like, it was fine. They were, like, good next to each other like that. Uh, then the following day, <clears throat> I got back from walking them, and Hank went into the back room to see Melanie, who was standing on his dog bed. And then Lachlan went trotting after him, and then he just he pinned Hank against the wall, and the two attacked each other again, spit flying, teeth bearing. And, and this time Lachlan took a big chunk out of Hank's left jowl. He didn't need stitches, but it was still nasty and kind of raw and open. And for the first time we were like, we really have to, we got, we got to bring Lachlan back to the shelter. Like he, he's probably needs to be in a single dog home. Like it's just square peg round hole here. So the entire house for this whole past week has been just super, super tense. You know, Kevin and Hank would be in one room with me or Melanie, and we'd keep Lachlan in another room with me or Melanie. I talked it out with the Chelsea at the shelter, and they agreed that it's most likely not a good fit. Like, the escalation didn't appear to be abating. So yesterday we made the choice to bring this sweet though incompatible dog back to the shelter and I was just all morning just bawling my eyes out sobbing just saying I'm sorry I'm sorry I'm sorry to to this guy and when we when we took on a third dog the the deal breaker would be if if he threatened the happiness and safety of the incumbents and that was it was trending in that direction it it, it oddly enough it feels like uh, a death in the family. It really does. You know, we always prided ourselves on being able to take on these unadoptable dogs and these kind of trouble cases and work with them and give them happy lives that they deserve. But this dynamic was just untenable. I, and I have to believe, I have to believe that there's a perfect family out there for this guy. Uh, but he was living at one point in his history, his short history, he was living in a in a car with an unhoused family. Then they surrendered him to the shelter. Then he was fostered for a few days with another family, but I think his separation issues and his and his barking, they had to bring him back to the shelter. Then we adopt him for three weeks, try to give him stability and some training and everything. Uh, but then even, you know, we had to, you know, surrender him back. You know, so we're complicit in the, trauma of this poor dog you know there is a there's a bright funny sweet goofy dog in there he loves touching you he loves like curling up right next to you he loves curling up next to like other very submissive dogs like he would spoon with kevin if he could if she let him sometimes she would get up and leave but he loved being up against her sometimes even hank but that was starting to get nasty as i have recounted you know i he needs, you know, I think he just needs to be on his own with a family who can work with him, have a yard, not leave him alone too much, and nurture him through his separation and his apparent aggression towards other male dogs. And when I handed him off yesterday, you know, I just melted down. You know, the poor woman who took him from me must have been like, keep it together, dude. But Lachlan, he just, they, you know, I leashed him up and handed him off, and he yanked her inside and didn't look back. And um, I'm glad he didn't look back. And I went in the car and I weeped for another five minutes. And then all all day and all night, we, two of us, we, Melanie and I, we, we couldn't shake the feeling that he'd be back in a kennel, you know, barking his head off, scared and abandoned again. I know it was the right call 
for the safety of all our dogs. I mean, there was a palpable relief even amongst like Kevin and Hank. You could see the, especially with Kevin, like the kind of joy came back to her face. Like she was living in some tense. You could just tell it was tense. I don't know if I'm just projecting relief onto them, but it just it appears that way. But we're just we're just gutted and so sad and feel so guilty. And you know, on top of that, uh, Melanie broke her ankle on Monday morning in our driveway. So all in all, an awesome week. So stay wild, CNFers, and if you can't do interview, see ya. <laughs> <laughs>